Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. forget how to talk into a recording it's been such a long time so long it's been so so long (laughs) or maybe it's been a few days like I'm not sure I feel like I'm living in a total time warp but I think it's been a while for sure since yeah I was just looking back the last episode we posted was September 2nd Well, okay, that makes total sense because um, for people who've been listening, I told you all that my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in April and he went into hospice at the end of August and he passed away September 15th. So that makes sense that the last time I would have been like above water to record something would have been in earlier September. Um, I was just thinking the other day that it's almost been three months and I can't believe that. I still can't even believe that the diagnosis happened. Like it all just feels like such yeah. a whirlwind. Um, so yeah, I, I, I feel like functional, you know, but definitely, I don't, I don't know if anybody listening has also lost both of their parents, but I, this is going to sound weird, but I think I was like a really, overconfident in my grief skills. Like, Mm. oh, I lost my mom when I was in my early twenties to cancer. I was obviously devastated at my dad's diagnosis and hate that this is our reality. But I, at the very least in the back of my mind, was like, I got this because I've done this for 20 years. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a really healthy relationship with that grief. And I do a good job of talking about my mom with my kids. They have a relationship with her, even though they've never met her, you know, like all of that. And I just, I don't think I realized how much of a mind fuck, for lack of a better word, it was going to be to lose my other parent. So just really super arrogant about my grief capabilities and realizing my (laughs) limits and where to grow. I mean, the other twist is that like, I knew, I knew this would be different because it's, you know, a different relationship. First of all, I'm a different person than I was 20 years ago. I also now have a partner and children who I am with every day. And so there's a certain amount of that that means I have to just kind of like suck it up and do my daily life. And then another part, like I have support that I didn't have before. I knew I had kids who I was going to have to explain this to and who lost someone they loved and have to help them. And that has been really hard. So there were some things on my radar about why this would be different, but I don't think that like the compounded, not like it's a math formula, but it, it isn't a linear math formula, like one plus one equals two. It's like exponential because now my sister and I don't have either parent and we're in our forties and that just feels weird. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we all try to prepare for things <laughs> the best way we know how, but it ends up just being a cluster anyway. <laughs> the way that we yeah. predict things is is so 
so off. I read a book a long, long time ago, and I can't remember oh, even what it's called now. My mind always goes blank <laughs> on this, but it just talked it about had a title and there was a title <laughs> and it was about a thing and I read it. But, oh, my God, I know that book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it was just about how terrible we are at predicting our handling and emotions and the future, mm-hmm. basically. Like we mm-hmm. have such a poor ability to to prepare ourselves for most things, good, bad, whatever it is. We just, yeah, it all comes differently than we think it's going to, I think. So especially when it's something that changes in your life, that's not take backable, you Mm -hmm. know, like I remember thinking this right before we had kids, like, I hope this was a good decision because I can't take it back. (laughs) Like once you do, that's it. And this is the same, like I, there's no getting him back, you know, like he died. Yeah. And then just the reality of that just feels so heavy and awful. I mean, there's so many things I'm grateful for in this experience, like a million things, honestly. And I'm a very glasses half full kind of person. So I tend to focus on those things, but the weight of it. And then, you know, me just thinking like, okay, I need to give myself some time, but then I'll be back to myself. And it's like, Oh no, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm technically back to work for months, but it's been a slot. I don't think I told you this, but I like also in the last couple of months, I, I'm going to get tested for ADHD. Mm. Did I tell you this? No, uh -uh. we haven't talked about this. Oh my God. Are you thinking like, yeah, that makes sense since you've known me (laughs) since I was like 10 years old. Yes, I will interject when you tell me why after okay. you have discussed it, then we can discuss. Because <laughs> my I sent some of the articles to my husband. He's like, yeah, all of those things make total sense. Yeah. I think, there, I mean, how I kind of came to this is a long and probably boring story to anybody listening. But what I found super interesting was that for women, the mm-hmm. diagnosis often does not happen until they're later because it doesn't always manifest in the ways that people expect it to manifest or kind of like the stereotypical ways. And that if you are like a very high functioning person in many ways, you can mask it. And that is that what I've been reading is especially for women when they kind of hit middle age, like mid career, mid family responsibilities, like you're taking care of younger kids, you might be taking care of older relatives, you're like, more responsible for things at work. You know, your life just gets more complicated that the systems you've cobbled together Mm -hmm. to manage your symptoms that you may or may not have even known you had, that those systems fall apart because they just can't handle that level of complication. And that when I read that, I was like, someone has been living in my brain Mm -hmm. and has described what it's like. You know, those machines, they have a name. They're like, you see them in cartoons and stuff where it's like an egg, a chicken lays an egg and the egg rolls down the thing and it hits a spoon and the spoon flips around and like yeah. turns a fan on and the fan blows a feather and the feather floats over to this thing. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is what is in my mind all the time and how every mm-hmm. system I've ever created for myself works. Like all of these um symptoms that I didn't even know were symptoms of ADHD are absolutely descriptors of my life. Like if you could see my office right now, it is just piles. And I, always think I'm going to have a system and then it always falls apart. My husband has nicknamed me for years, like Piley Cyrus, Piles Davis. Like I am (laughs) a Piles person. Um, Mm -hmm. even there's, so there's a lot of like, um, 
attention things. Like I was at the gym and the woman who works with me was laughing so hard. And she's like, I've never met someone who I think is so smart, who cannot count to 10. And I will be doing reps. And I guarantee you, by the time I get to five or six, my mind has wandered to somewhere Mm -hmm. and I forget. And I laughed and I said, yeah, the character I've seen in a movie where I felt the most seen and represented on screen was Dory, the fish in Finding Nemo. (laughs) So I know like, it's always been kind of a running joke about how like forgetful I am or whatever. But I was like, oh, I think there's actually something else going on. And then even like some physiological things like teeth grinding, I have ground my teeth like a boss for decades. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I keep reading about it and it actually, whether I get a diagnosis or not, all of what I'm reading has been incredibly helpful, especially articles about what it's like to be married to someone with ADHD Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that has been really, really helpful and basically like a transcript of every argument I've ever had with my husband about anything. Um, but the, the other kind of twist to this is how awful our mental health services mm-hmm. are in this country. And mm-hmm. I know I'm not the first person to say this, but to try to even get in to get a test as an adult, I, I mean, I'm not sure it's going to be months and months before I can get like an official test. So, so it's, here's it's the wild. Thing. There's, there's options and it's hysterical that you say that because I actually started medication for ADHD, like what? A, m- a month or two ago. <laughs> what? You are blowing my mind off. Are you kidding me? No, no, I don't take it all the time. What? Um, because I was having a conversation with someone close to me who was recently diagnosed with ADHD, who had just, also struggled with like depression, anxiety for a long, long, long time and had been on all sorts of depression and anxiety medication that didn't really help. Like, I mean, it affected some things, wasn't good in other ways, like never really found the balance, but then got diagnosed with ADHD and on ADHD medication and like 180 change (gasps) in like the depression and anxiety stuff was really just from the undiagnosed ADHD, not from... I mean, still it, some depression, totally, anxiety oh, sure. components, I mean, but you know, it all we're works living together. In the world that we live in, but yeah. that I, I, when I <clears throat> talked to my doctor, especially with my dad's diagnosis, you know, things just like surfaced, but I, I said, I really don't think my anxiety is the problem. I think it's the symptom. Like I think because mm-hmm. my internal systems are falling apart and not working and that I'm constantly panicked that I'm like forgetting to be somewhere or forgetting to do something or like, did I leave the stove on or have I put pants on today and I'm out in public? Like literally anything that I, I just feel like I'm, I don't trust my own brain. And that leads to a lot of anxiety, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, was so I was talking woman, about, by the way? no, it was not. Oh, okay. Um, but I was talking about like all of the things that they, you know, had read and all the symptoms that they'd had and all of that kind of stuff. And they were like, you know what? You probably have the same things. Like you should look at it. And I (laughs) automatically have a pushback on this kind of thing because working in the health field, like I have thought for a long time that ADHD is one of the most overdiagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. Same in education. Most teachers would say the same thing where it's just like, but I think that that is a different side of ADHD. So I think that's like the hyperactivity mm-hmm. ADHD mm-hmm, that's diagnosed mm-hmm. in kids. 
that I think is very overdiagnosed. And yeah. maybe yeah. this is still me being judgy, but huh, when have we not known me to be judgy as fuck? <laughs> um, is that but, one of the symptoms? Yeah, judgy as Check. <laughs> but I'm like, hey, how about you just like discipline your kid and then they don't need to be on drugs? Or how about you just like have a structure and then you don't have to drug your kids or like, you know, whatever. That's my own judginess self, which I still think <laughs> that ADHD in kids is way overdiagnosed. And I don't like putting children on medications, especially the kind of medications that ADHD is usually treated with. I'm not really mm. sure how that affects mm. brain development in that point in time. But yes, when you're talking about like women our age in our early to mid forties, midlife kind of thing, it's much more yeah. of that inattentive kind of ADHD that we get diagnosed with. And it's really because your brain is being pulled 85 million different ways. And so then you can't Mm. focus on anything because Mm -hmm. you're always trying to multitask and do 85 million things, as I was saying. And we think Mm -hmm. that we can because we did for so long, but then it comes Mm -hmm. to a point where you realize, oh, like this isn't working or Mm -hmm. maybe it could be better or I'm affecting other people in my life negatively because of the way that I handle things, you know, like I realized it too. Same thing, like marriage relationship arguments. It's just like, oh, maybe this is me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think either of our husband's pain in the ass to to live with someone. (laughs) (laughs) They should listen to just this episode. Just (laughs) this episode. Well, I, I mean, all of that, like, yes, I, it is just interesting. Like, oh gosh, I've never, it never even occurred to me. And that from what I've been reading and reading and reading about it, like the, that you end up internalizing a lot of shame Mm -hmm. and guilt. Like I'm a bad person. Why can't I hold it together? Why can't I get this done? Why can't I juggle all of these things? Like I should just be able to, you know, pull myself up by the old bootstraps and get (laughs) her done. It's not even even bootstraps. It's like, can I be a functional member of this team or family or whatever it is? So yeah, Yeah. I, I'm excited to just keep learning more about it. And And it is hard. It is really hard to get appointments, I think, and it depends on how you want to do it. There are other options to get treatment for people who cannot get in to like see somebody. There are online options, which is what I did. Yeah. And I'm sure that people will would argue that anybody then can just go on and get medications from these places because these people are just like asking you a questionnaire and then prescribing stuff. But I mean, that's how it's diagnosed. You fill out a questionnaire, you talk to somebody about There's it. There's not like a they blood test. They say if you meet, right. the criteria, you meet the criteria right. of it. Um, and right. at least in the case of the one that I went on, I'm not taking a stimulant medication. So there are yeah. stimulant and non-stimulant ADHD meds. Interesting. Um, and the one that I'm taking is called Stratera. It's a non-stimulant um, it starts okay. so you'd like, you can change the dosage of it started very low and I've just stayed at the lowest dose. And I really take it like when I have stuff to do mostly, or I found it's very helpful <laughs> when I take it before I go to work. Cause then I can mm-hmm. focus much more while I'm at work yeah. and like actually yeah. get stuff done and move more efficiently and stay awake also. I think, the night. I, you know, I am, I am not anti-medication. I, of course, like want to be careful and thoughtful about it, but I think just knowing that this exists and there are, have times I've already caught myself like, Oh, um, I think that I just did X or like, Oh, I think this is my time blindness. And so I need to set a timer because I know I'm not going to be able to keep track. So even like non, not 
opposed to medication, but even just having that as something that's on my radar and I can just be more deliberate and use systems that actually work for what I'm going through. And then, yeah, just to read about it and feel validated. Like I'm not an asshole. I mean, maybe I am an asshole sometimes. (laughs) That's totally possible. But also, you know, right. That's, (laughs) there's no medication for that. Um, anyway, so that, that is amazing. Oh man, if there was asshole medication, that'd be great. (laughs) I think you'd be prescribing a lot of it, like whether people wanted it or not. Um, well, I mean, gosh, we don't need to turn this podcast into like mental health chat with Katie and Mandy, but it is, it's just nice to like put it out there and just say, Hey, you know, we are always, maybe this is a good segue to what we want to talk about because we are always learning. We are always changing just because we're in our forties doesn't mean we figured ourselves out, figured the world out. Like that's something that I am actually really excited about when it comes to being alive. I mean, I, we could talk more too about my dad and what an incredible person he was. And we had this beautiful memorial for him that I'm so grateful that we were able to do. But one of the things that I most admire about my dad is that he was like fully alive, like Mm -hmm. absolutely curious about everything was very intentional in all his relationships and how he spent his time, like not a time waster person at all. And so that is something that I'm thinking a lot about with his legacy is just being open to keep learning and growing and finding new things out about myself and the world and not, not doing that, um, in a way that's like shame based, but just really excited. And I think like mental health is one area of that relationships is another area. And this like history, you know, just, the understanding the world that we live in so we can be better people. All of that is connected. Like I want to be the best, not the best in a competitive way, but like my whole self, I want to be able to be that whole self so I can contribute to the world and be a part of the world in a way that like spreads love and justice. And you know, the more Mm -hmm. we know, isn't there a cheesy, like the more you know, boo-doo-doo, yep. like a star. <laughs> it's the star crossing that shoots across the, the rainbow or something. Yes, like that. exactly. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. That is what we're here for. Yes. So this is probably like the clunkiest segue we've ever had, but I, <laughs> it's just been too long. There's too much to catch up on. Um, we actually even stopped mid-book before yeah. um, I had to like be with my dad full-time, which again, such an incredible gift that I'm super grateful for, but also like really fucking hard. So anyone out there taking care of family members, especially like older people in your family, just my heart goes out to you. It is really, really, really hard. Um, okay. So we were talking about Ruby Hamad's beautiful book. Mm-hmm. We've gotten through half of it. Is yep. it white tears, brown scars? Is that the order of the title? Yep. White tears, brown scars. And we, um, I had, we'd said in our last episode when we started this, that we'd initially talked to Ruby and, um, a long time ago and wanted to reach out to her to talk to her about the book. And I had talked to her and it actually is a little helpful that we've had this delay because (laughs) when I first reached out to her, she was like, yes, I would love to do it. We may just have to do it a little bit later because her schedule was super busy. And so now hopefully this will all coincide and... The universe was totally cool with our (laughs) pause in the book. But we, I mean, truly, I cannot recommend this book enough. I know there's a lot of books we say that about, but they're all really good. And this one, we uh, had mentioned before that something that I felt, well, a lot of it was um, 
very, very deeply connected to so many of our episodes that we've done so far, mm-hmm. whether it's suffrage or eugenics or, um, gosh, I mean, like waves of feminism, like yeah. everything we've done so far, I think there were connections in this book. But what we haven't talked about nearly enough has been the connections to colonialism and to empire and how all of that is connected mm-hmm. to racism um, yeah. and to sexism and the way this, that those intersect. And she just breaks it down so beautifully and has such a great global focus that it was such a good reminder. You know, we've most of the stories that we've learned about thus far have been very U.S. centric. And I think we've been, you know, learning more and more about the ways all of these issues are connected. But I'm I'm really excited to think about the way that colonialism, settler colonialism, imperialism is like a massive engine of all of this. And I even made a list of all the things that she mm-hmm. mentioned, some of which have been on our list of things to tackle, yeah. you know, yeah. in the 97 years we're going to need for this right. part, part one <laughs> of this podcast. Um, but just like a quick list, like yeah. things I really Let's wanted to tackle in this next season. Okay, One is just like straight up colonies, like mm-hmm. the colonizing, um, particularly that Great Britain did, but not just Great Britain, um, also the United States and other countries colonizing other places and the mm-hmm. role that white women and white womanhood played in that mm-hmm. um, really powerful role. Um, settlement in the, quote, West of the United States. So mm-hmm. thinking about where we grew up, Iowa being a huge part of that, but where you live now and Las mm-hmm. Vegas being a big part of that, like all of the history of attempted forcible removal and attempted genocide of native people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that includes boarding schools and child removal and the, the huge role that white women played as like mothers and mm-hmm. saviors in mm-hmm. this genocidal process, um, uh, that's connect, connected to a lot of the family separation policies that go on today. Yep. Um, that I know we'll talk about a little bit as, of this and then connected to that, like white woman as mother looking at the role white women have played in resisting civil rights through their identity as mothers and as mm-hmm. protecting children, which is totally connected. I know we've been wanting to read this book, the mothers of massive resistance book, and I can't wait to read it, but how that's connected to the women we talked about, the Confederate women who fought really hard to get yeah. like the lost cause preserved and monuments, memorials, textbooks, all of that, but how that's connected to all of these other white mothers that are now showing up at school board meetings Mm -hmm. and trying to kick out. Yes. Yeah. Or, or just like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, just the whole anti-critical race theory as if that was even something that gets taught in elementary schools. But anyway, like I mean, it's, that it's anything do. that you can lump into this. Yes. Yeah. And, and straight up white nationalism. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of Jesse Daniels, our conversation with her mm-hmm. and her work on looking at white women involved in like the Klan and, and like, you know, really explicit hate groups, um, QAnon's connections to that and the ways that it all circles back to these connections between eugenics and imperialism and colonialism and you know it just the ways that it all braids together so tightly is fascinating and and just incredibly daunting but i think of all the people that we've interviewed so far just how clear they are about why this is this is why intersectionality matters so much mm-hmm. and that these are all connected 
histories because it's all about who counts as human and who gets to live in the world as themselves. And yep. so when you frame it that way, she's got this quote, and I didn't grab the page number for this. Ruby Hamad writes in this, the second part of the book, um, it's not about femininity and masculinity and how one should behave to be sufficiently one or the other, but about who counts as a woman and who counts as a man, who counts as human. Mm-hmm. Settler colonial history has determined they are something that only white men and white women have. And I thought, whoa, that right there is like the umbrella for anti-trans legislation and racist stuff that's happening, anti-Semitic stuff that's happening. Like all of this is about who counts as human and who deserves respect, rights, dignity, life, choice, like all of that. So it just, for me, was a really awesome way to kind of lift up to see how all of these all of these elements of racialized identity, sexual identity, gender identity, cl- like all of it, religion, class, like it connects so tightly together. I don't know. Did, were yeah. you struck by that when you were reading this? Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love about reading these books. But this one, I think Hamad does such an awesome job at is there's so much history in the book. Like she goes back and does these yeah. deep dives into all of these issues of colonialism, imperialism. And then also her connection of them to what is going on in the current day. And yes. then I love talking about it and discussing it with you too, because then it's like the connection in our lives and the stories that we see and the interactions that we have and, you know, how you mm-hmm. can actually piece all of that together, which is where I think the whole book club aspect is so interesting to be able to pull all of those things apart. It's the complexity of it almost it's exciting. And then it also is like daunting. And then it's like my, and then it's my brain just chasing down one side and then going, Oh, but now I want to go back to this side too. And you know, there's just, but I I think like having it all kind of laid out in front of you really helps me commit even more deeply to intersectional movements for justice. Like Mm -hmm. if I say that I care about this, then you have to care about that because They are all connected. Yep. So you can't be anti-racist and transphobic. Nope. Like they, it doesn't work. You mm-hmm. know, you can't, um, say that you care about the rights of immigrants, but you don't care about like land back movements and indigenous rights and sovereignty. Yep. Like there's, there's no way to think about it. And there's no perfect policy solution or like obvious way forward through all of that. But at the very least, just understanding that these connections are there is huge. And I think one common denominator through all of them is how white women can function as the point that binds those oppressions together. Mm-hmm. That we, that's not a glue I want to be. Right. I you, know, I say, you say that you can't do those things, except for white women have been like, mm. doing all of that kind of compartmentalization of, oh, I can fight for this thing, or I can do it in this way and not realizing that the things they're leaving out or the methods that they're using are more harmful and actually not fighting for the thing that you they know, say they're going after. I just had this realization, like, you know, we've talked about kind of two categories of white womanhood that we're critiquing on this podcast. One is like the straight up bonkers bigots that yeah. are 
I know you're like very motivated to take down and drag <laughs> and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, and then there are like liberal white women or progressive white women who mm-hmm. think they ha- are more woke. I would put us in this category who yeah. like want to be more invested, but don't understand the need to be intersectional. And so yeah. end up selling out, especially white women who are committed to feminism without thinking about all of these other things that yeah. like quote liberal white feminists can be incredibly problematic and damaging. And so those two categories, but it just occurred to me that not all of them, I'm sure, but the women who are straight up bigots actually have a way more intersectional analysis. Like they're in some ways more clear minded about how all these things fit together. Mm -hmm. So they're like, yeah, my policies are going to be anti-trans, anti-black, anti-this. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Like I'm going to that that all fits under my ideological umbrella. It's almost like they are, they have more clarity about how those systems of oppression work mm-hmm. than liberal white feminists who say like, if we just fix, you know, sexism is the problem or whatever it is. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I need to think about that more, but it just thought, Oh yeah, they're real good at um, interlocking all those oppressions and making laws and policies that are heinous in every single way. Yeah. Um well, and, and then we need like a revert. We need a third group that is like as intersectional and in solidarity with. And I know there are mm-hmm. people. Well, there are certainly women who are not white who are absolutely like for sure. And we've talked about third wave. I don't know. I don't like the waves, but, you know, thinking about third world feminism or ways that for many, 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 many generations that especially queer women of color, native women, like have absolutely had that understanding, but I'm talking specifically about white women. There are so few examples of white women who have like a radical, robust, intersectional approach. I don't know. And I think, I think the thing that we have to get over in order to make that progress and get to that point is exactly like what this book is about is about getting past the white tears part about it. Cause I think that Mm -hmm. obviously, like you said, there's the group of women that we all know are employing that strategically. And that is what they mean to do. And they're using it as a means to their ends. But then there are the more progressive um, white women that we categorize ourselves with who also utilize these white women tears When we get called out about anything that we might not be doing appropriately. And that is the stuff that we have no time for. That is a distraction from getting to where we want to be at that we just have to stop. It just actually reminded me of the conversation that I was having with my 10 year old daughter. when we were, I know it is insane. It's really, really weird. Um, But we were talking about, when she gets in trouble for things, which is very, very rarely because she's a very first child type A personality doing everything quickly and perfectly all the time. (laughs) But when she doesn't, then she has absolute breakdowns and it's all like crying. Like I'm not good enough. I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. Like blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But then I told her, Mm -hmm. but now, now we're spending all of this time having to, like deal with your feelings and tell you that you're not terrible. You're a good kid. You're wonderful. Instead of, and we've become totally distracted from the fact that your room's a freaking mess and you need to pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) 
if you got out of having to deal with your room because now I'm comforting you. But that's so what happens like on a micro level <laughs> with all of white mm-hmm. women's issues. Like we're having to comfort white women through their realization of the shit that we've pulled instead of just actually dealing with the issue. I I think even that is probably more generous. Like, I don't think they, we, I will say we make it through that realization very often. I think the white tears, like they're like a, a, a trigger point or like an, a moment, but I don't think many white women get past that point. No, they don't. Yeah. So I, I don't know, not that it would be a great idea if there was some sort of guarantee to make it through that phase to some other phase, but yeah, I, I thought her Ruby Hamad's like ability to historicize and contextualize these incidents that have happened in the last couple of years on social media or in, you know, she's, she's in communications and journalism. And so these episodes are incidents that have happened, but she's able to situate them to say like, here's what's going on and here's why that's even a thing. Like why this even played out this way. And I, I think she's, very clear about white women who in other instances have been champions of different issues and pushing for equity in particular ways who then fall into these other ruts. I I thought something she's also so good at is describing these archetypes and diving into them. Um, And that they weren't ones that I had ever heard of before. So one from the second part of the book was the Lovejoy trap. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this mm-hmm. part? Did you see I the recent stuff though online about what happened with the Lovejoy trap? No. What okay. happened? So, well, let's explain what yes, it is. Let's and talk then, about, okay. yeah. Okay. You tell what it I is love, and then I'll of course give you, you know, the because update. I've been living under a rock and I'm yeah. never on social media anyway. And I yeah. feel like all I know about is what sales are happening at Aldi. Okay. So <laughs> the Lovejoy trap is based on this. I think it's a Simpsons character, right? Yeah. No. I, yeah, yeah, yes. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Helen Lovejoy mm-hmm. that is always like, well, somebody please think of the children. Yeah. And so it's this way Ruby Juan said, it's a means of neutralizing challenges to the status quo. I will say that again. It's like a, a way to stop criticism of something that's happening. A means of neutralizing challenges to the status quo by taking the onus off the actual issue at hand. Lovejoys cynically and effectively mask their economic and political imperatives by invoking the suffering and well-being of children to neutralize any objections because that is where our humanity is most easily tested. Mm-hmm. So that resonated with me being someone who's been in education for 20 years and who travels to schools and districts all over the country. And I see that as a motivating force that's very easy to tap into for people that can lead them into really damaging relationships with kids and families. But it's this idea that like, you know, oh, won't we think of the children? Um, And then using that as a way to distract from attention to the root structural causes of why there's a problem in the first place and what that problem is. Okay. So now tell me what has been happening. So what happened is, is that a woman... Um, and I think now I'm looking it up so I can get some of the details of it right, is that a woman named Caitlin Green wrote an essay um, in a publication, and I can't remember. I think it's Liberal Currents, 
is the um, publication that she wrote in. And she talks about the Lovejoy trap while barely giving any credit to Ruby Hamad for coming up with this framework <gasps> for Which it. Which it is, it is Ruby Hamad. It's her, right? yeah, like, it's her, okay. her thing. She talked about it. She came up with it. Um, she wrote about it in this book, White Tears, Brown Scars. And this woman, um, Caitlin Green, writes about it as if it's just a concept that exists and that has been out there and that she can then like build on and talk about more without like ever really giving. I mean, she does mention that um, the Lovejoy trap is mentioned in Hamad's book, but does not give her credit for coming for like naming it. it. Yeah. And just to clarify, maybe you said this in my brain that can hold one piece of information at a time. Is she a white woman? Of course she is. Yes. A white woman. So, okay. Mm -hmm. So she writes this piece and then was there, were people calling her out like, well, this is. Well, so she gets all this praise for the piece. That's just like, Uh oh, this is so wonderful. This is so great. And Ruby Hamad is just like, uh, this is my work. (sighs) And this is exactly what white women do. Oh my God. Over. <laughs> it's gotta just be. And over. Like, again, like she wrote on her um, Instagram, she said, the Lovejoy trap isn't just a name I coined. It's an entire framework framework I constructed through which to recognize, view, and understand a particular social phenomena. The ease with which another woman, an academic, can just breezily attempt to subversively take credit for it by undermining the fact that it is my work and that everything she was saying in her own essay either comes directly from my work or is heavily inspired by it and wouldn't exist without it is just mind-boggling. Oh, my God. I mean, it is like living in a house of mirrors. Like here is this woman, Ruby Hamad writing brilliantly about the shitty things white women do. And like, kind of, of course, a white woman is going to take that and pass it off as her own word. I mean, oh my God. Well, and then the other thing uh, that she says about it. So so in the essay, she's like talking about the Lovejoy trap being more about like fascism and supporting like fascist principles. And Rumi Hamad is like, no, it's about whiteness. Yes. The Lovejoy trap is about whiteness. And of course, like a white person is stealing the term, acting oh. like it's theirs, and then making it not about whiteness either. <laughs> She's just like, this is just unbelievable that this is what's but happening. That, so that right there, what you just described, like taking something, passing it off as your own or not crediting where it came from, and then evacuating what made it powerful in the first place. Yeah. And getting praise for it. Yeah. That, like, that chain of dominoes is, like, so, again, predictably, like, <laughs> set up and pushed over and, like, knocked down. Like, there are, I'm sure we have people listening in every field, in every place who has had an experience with exactly that. And I, it, I just, it's so galling. Like, it honestly makes me think, like, what, I, I it has this, author, I mean, again, it's not like, oh, someone just needs to tell her and she'll fix it because that's not how these dominoes work. Right. But has she been alerted so, to the yeah, fact that so she's people, been called out? A lot of people wrote then on her um, tweets about it and wrote like, this 
came from Ruby Hamad, you're not giving credit. And then she mm-hmm. did this like kind of not apology, like credit giving. Your thing. favorite kind of apology. Yeah. The, the <laughs> one that's, <laughs> I'm sorry you all don't understand how awesome I am right. and are so sensitive. Yes. Apology. Exactly like that. So, Ugh. of course, of course, troubling. But, well, I, it, it is just like fucking predictable. And I don't know. It just, I feel like at a loss. I need to think about like, okay, we got to do something because that it's just so infuriating. It's infuriating. Yeah. This, the idea, like all, each of those steps, like the credit taking is a massive problem. The getting praise for the thing that, you said was yours, but actually was a woman of colors. That is obviously a massive problem. And then the, the fact that you changed the thing that made it powerful in the first place. So you've like taken out the, what made it a valuable tool to critique whiteness. It, I mean, oh my God, it's just all too perfectly awful. It all just falls exactly into the entire point in the first place. So I have not followed it for a few weeks since that came out. I'd like to go back then and see more of what the reaction was because yeah. Then the question is, what do you, what? So I guess my question is what, uh, obviously as a white woman, it would be great not to do that then at all, at all, ever not do it, not do it. But then once you've been called out on it, what is the proper way to respond to that? I guess like, Oh fuck. I need to shut up and do my work. But I think the fact that someone took it, all three of those steps is an indication. Like if we were to make a graph of someone doing all three of those steps and the likelihood that they will actually engage in reparations that are meaningful. I don't, I'm bad at graphs and I'm tired and need another (laughs) cup of coffee, but it's like, there's, there's no overlap there. Like the odds are so low that someone's going to do all of those things. Like maybe the odds would be higher if they had preserved the power of the argument. But even then it's like, how do you not fucking know to give credit? I don't understand that. Yeah, I don't understand. And it makes me so mad. Um, yeah, it's just gross. I I don't know. I mean, again, like I I really want to think about it because this shouldn't also be Ruby Hamad's job to deal with this person. And it shouldn't right. be. Cause then she like ends up the, calling them out and then that plays, that has to be like a whole other deconstructed thing about like what that yeah. makes her, the position yep. that puts her in. Yes, exactly. To be someone saying like, give me credit for my work. Like, don't steal and things. Don't, don't change. undercut yeah. the point of it. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Well, hopefully we can talk with her and basically like whatever <laughs> she needs us to do, we can do. But I, it is. I know we joke about like white lady camp to come to to just mm-hmm. be like, you guys stop. But I really, I don't know how we get that woman there. This is an academic. What's her job? Caitlin Green, yeah, I think she's an academic as well. I'm not sure her entire background. Oh, academia, you mm -hmm. awful bitch. It (laughs) it is like there. This story is you could swap out the names for a million people. You know, it's so so common, and 
awful. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I just, I think this is again, like one of our responsibilities and obligations to do in our friendships, in our workplaces, wherever we are to say like, that is inexcusable and there needs to be accountability and consequences and a non-apology on Instagram or whatever doesn't count, you know, that's not it. Um, and it's the thing that's tricky is it's, Once that cat's out of the bag, it's hard to, and I'm not saying this to, as an excuse, like, so I guess I can't fix it. I'm just saying like the damage is done and there's Mm -hmm. some damage you can't undo. Mm -hmm. So what do we do then? You know? Yeah. Oh God. Well, of course, I'm so glad my sweet petty detective, I've missed you so much. (laughs) I'm so happy that you had that update. How awful. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah. And there's so many different. Um, like you said, kind of like archetypes and tropes and things that Ruby Hamad talks about throughout this whole book that we could go into more and maybe we can get into some more of them and discuss more of them with her. But one of the things that I like to think about that she talks about, like this performance of womanhood Mm -hmm. or performance Mm -hmm. of white womanhood and like, Mm -hmm where we learn that kind of performance and where that comes from, how that plays out. We kind of talked about it in the end of the last episode, when you were talking about that example of Thea and playing with the boys in the backyard. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I do whole, remember. Oh, the, like Nerf gun me. and the balls yes. and like the whole thing yes. about where you were like, no, yes. we don't want to act the same way. And she's just like, yeah, you got to <laughs> show them what it feels like. <laughs> Let's get in there and like really just show them what it is. And then, but like, yeah, how are I we know. teaching that? How did we learn that? Like, where are we still playing that out in our own professional roles and yes. in our friendships and yes. like the way we interact in the freaking grocery store? I mean, I know it's all something yep. that we're continually playing out all of the time. And I think, I, I think, like yet part of even trying to tease out, like there's being aware of it. Like that's an important piece for sure. And, and being able to, to not play into it. But I, I think sometimes I get to a point where it's hard to know, like, am I a cheerful person or am I white womaning this situation? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. And yeah. it actually makes me mad at white supremacy. Like, fuck you for making me not know who I am as a person. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, that is frustrating. And it's definitely not as frustrating as like being on the receiving end of racism for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But it, it is, it's like, God, I don't like, am I, and I think part of it is. What am I doing this for? Like, what are my motivations? What are my, yeah. Yep. What are my intentions? And then I've talked about it. Like, I do think I lead with love and I think you lead with rage. (laughs) (laughs) And that might just be like our different personalities mm-hmm. like sure but but and i do think there's something innate in all of us that we have but but so much of it is about socialization and so it's hard to tease out like i am a white woman who grew up in a middle class family with straight catholic parents in the suburbs of the midwest you know like the layers of that it's probably not a surprise that i'm like a chipper friendly person mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. so what does that mean how much of that is, is wrapped up in whiteness? And then what do I want to do about it? And if there are still reasons to be 
that way in the world, how can I be sure that I'm using them in ways that disrupt white supremacy, transphobia, cisgenderism, like all of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's not always easy to figure out, but it is something I think the older I get, the more that I've really thought about, like it's what, what parts of this are the training? I mean, she says in one part, like what's the quote that she has? It is though it is as though there is a literal textbook. Mm-hmm. She says about how white women learn to be shitty people, like, <laughs> and to do all of these like machinations. Is it machinations? Machinations? No, I, I machinations? Don't ask me. I am not sure a that we'll go with that. Well, <laughs> uh, but it, I do think, like, yeah, I know there wasn't a literal textbook, but I also hear her and I agree. Like, there were a million lessons that we all learned, and there's a, there's all a the very time. strategic aspects to it. Like I like another part um, where she says the insidiousness of the strategic white womanhood is that it masks power. It is power pretending to be powerless. And I think that's what comes with like the white tears. It's like tears are seen as a weakness, but when they're employed in the way that many white women use them, they're actually a form of wielding power. And so is our presumption of always being innocent in any of these situations where we can just pretend like, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Like, oh, I was not trying to steal your work. Oh, I wasn't trying to like do all of this. It's just this innocence that we learn to utilize that is really just another way of, it's just a power play. It really is. Yep. Which I think that's why white feminists, I think, are a particular problem in all of this, because Mm -hmm. then you're focusing on framing the powerlessness that misogyny and patriarchy cultivate for women and non-binary folks. But there is that like to not then also understand the way that we have incredible power or that we've traded in on that in order to get protection. Mm -hmm. That is like to, to do one without the other, we see where that gets us. It, mm-hmm. This is where it gets us. Mm-hmm. Not great. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really do think her, her pointing to like, you all have learned this and you all mobilize it and you all use it. Um, and if you're not consciously using it, I don't know, that might even be worse. Like just for us to just really, really scrutinize why we are the way we are how we can leverage and use what what we have to disrupt systems of supremacy and not be invested in them yeah. to disinvest from them yeah um there was one other part this is kind of a different point but i loved this quote that was towards the end of the book because you and i have talked about this so much whenever we have kate block on kate block kate shots <laughs> kate shots <laughs> kate block is this amazing woman i met when i was in grad school who Gave the like best massage I've ever had in my entire life. She's a wonderful <laughs> human being. And if she's listening, I haven't talked to her for ages, but Kate shots that <laughs> she, Kate is like, we're always talking about the few white women we can point to who were super intersectional and like truly, really radical in their 
their ability to not buy into all of this. And there's this quote, page 164, for anybody Mm -hmm. reading along, no one is really ahead of their time. If anything, such people are exactly of their time because they have the capacity to to diagnose the maladies of their era and prescribe the remedies. The problem is just how stubbornly resistant to the medicine the rest of us are. Mm -hmm. It's not merely that we are behind them. It's that we all too often resent those bold thinkers for what they tell us about our society and ourselves. And our response is to either ignore them or silence them. And I know one of the things we keep repeating too, is how the argument like, Oh, people didn't know you have to think about the time they were living in just how, how much that justification bothers us. And I think that quote from Ruby Hamad encapsulates it so beautifully. Like, no, these people were not ahead of their time. And these people weren't behind it. They were all in it. These people had it figured out and were mm-hmm. speaking truth. And these people didn't like it. Yep. That's what it is. And yep. so to say, to understand a historical context in either way is just to me, like the biggest of red flags that you are going to justify a whole fuck ton of stuff in the present. If yep. that's how you're looking at the past. Yeah. Which we are justifying a whole whole lot of stuff because of that. Well, Well, yeah. I can't wait to talk to Ruby Hamad. I really, really hope we can get that to work out. And then I also can't wait to dive into these topics that really, I think, pull us up like off of a U.S. centric lens and off of looking at just like kind of these specific topics or cases. I know we'll still be looking at particular themes of things. But I think by looking at colonization, imperialism, settlement, that we actually can understand these forces and the connection between indigenous rights, civil rights, women's rights, trans rights, like there's just so many connections. So I'm, I'm really, really, really excited about that for sure. So we're back, baby. We are. We're serious this time. Knock on Last wood. time we said Knock that. On wood. And then it was three and a half months before we posted anything again. I <laughs> cannot. For real I this time. At, like the razor's <laughs> edge of holding on to sanity. So I'm hoping that this is it. And we have like a calm winter, a relatively calm winter and spring. But yeah. I, yeah, I love you. I'm so happy to see you. And you thank you everyone for listening and your support. Yes, and hopefully and now you're and- all caught up. And Get so we can just subscribe and mm-hmm. share, get and other people on to, to your friends. Listen, please. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. And we yeah. always love getting emails. I know the last few months, again, things have been wild that I don't always respond right away, but we do love hearing from people like what's resonating with them and, um, and that they're sharing it. That means a lot. So we, yes, we will, we will get our act together, but yes. we appreciate so much. And we are working on some exciting things too, that hopefully we are. we're going to get up off the ground in this next year as well. So <laughs> I swear we kind of have oh, good. <laughs> I'm laughing because I have, you know, what's it called? Like, you know, when a, like an NFL player or basketball player or whatever jumps and they have like a, like the height you can jump that mm-hmm. has a name. Do you yeah, know what something. it is? You're asking like, me. <laughs> I well, whatever it is, but clearance. Vertical, I don't know what to call vertical, it. Vertical something. Someone I, is screaming into their <laughs> like iPod right now. But it is whatever it is that I literally can jump like a half of an inch. No. I have 
I am a short person to begin with. And then I literally have, there's a picture of girlfriends and I at one point, like jumping, you know, like everybody Mm -hmm. jump at the Mm -hmm. same time. And I was jumping as high as I possibly could. And it looks like I'm just like on tiptoes and everybody else (laughs) is like a foot (laughs) off the ground. So we will get this off the ground in a much better way than my like half inch, whatever it's called, vertical jump. (laughs) Vertical. That's something, there is something about a vertical jump, I think. What's a horizontal? But there's no horizontal jump. No. Why would you do that? So what? So like, why even add vertical? Because you can only jump well, one way. Yeah, right? you could jump forward or backwards. That's what the long jumpers yeah. do. They jump forward. For we should more stop talking about sports. Ta- <laughs> catch us up with sports physics, our other podcast <laughs> that we dive into. What direction you can jump? How fast you can oh, run? Boy. <laughs> neither i can jump nowhere and i can not run um all right everybody have a great great week weekend etc yeah okay have a good one bye